too, said, they shall do as I say. Then he and his followers worked up what seemed to them a clever scheme for hoodwinking the colonists. We will make the tea cheaper in America than in England, they said. Such a bargain. How can the simple colonists resist it? Great faith was put in this foolish plan, but they were soon to find out that those simple colonists were only Englishmen across the sea, that they too had strong wills, and that they did not care half so much about buying cheap tea as they did about giving up a principal and paying a tax, however small, which they had no part in levying. King George went straight ahead to carry out his plan. It was arranged that the East India Company should ship cargoes of tea to Boston, New York, Philadelphia, and Charleston. In due time the tea arrived, then the king's eyes were opened. What did he find out about the spirit of these colonists? That they simply would not use this tea. The people in New York and Philadelphia refused to let it land, and in Charleston they stored it in damp cellars, where it spoiled. But the most exciting time was in Boston, where the Tory governor, Hutchinson, was determined to carry out the king's wishes. Hence occurred the famous Boston Tea Party, a strange tea party, where no cups were used no guests invited, and no tea drunk. Did you ever hear of such a party? Let us see what really happened. It was on a quiet Sunday, the 28th of November, 1773, when the Dartmouth, the first of the three tea ships bound for Boston, sailed into the harbor. The people were attending service in the various churches when the cry, the Dartmouthism, spread like wildfire. Soon the streets were alive with people. That was a strange Sunday in Puritan Boston. The leaders quickly sought out Benjamin Roch, the owner of the Dartmouth, and obtained his promise that the tea should not be landed before Tuesday. Then they called a mass meeting for Monday morning, in Fanwell Hall, afterward known as the Cradle of Liberty. The crowd was so great that they adjourned to the Old South Church, and there they overflowed into the street. There were 5,000 in hall, some of them from nearby towns. Samuel Adams presided, in addressing the meeting. He asked, is it the firm resolution of this body not only that the tea shall be sent back, but that no duty shall be paid thereon? Yes, came the prompt and united answer from these brave men. So the patriots of Boston and the surrounding towns, with Samuel Adams at their head, were determined that the tea should not be landed. Governor Hutchinson was equally determined that it should be a stubborn fight, therefore, was on hand. The Boston patriots appointed men armed with muskets and bayonets, to watch the tea ships, some by day, others by night. Six post riders were appointed, who should keep their horses saddled and bridled, ready to speed into the country to give the alarm if the landing should be attempted. Sentinels were stationed in the church belfries to ring the bells, and beacon fires were made ready for lighting on the surrounding hilltops. Tuesday, December 16th, dawned. It was a critical day. If the tea should remain in the harbor until the morrow the 20th day after arrival the revenue officer would be empowered by law to land it forcibly. Men, talking angrily and shaking their fists with excitement, were thronging into the streets of Boston from the surrounding towns. By 10 o'clock over 7,000 had assembled in the Old South Church and in the streets outside. They were waiting for the coming of Benjamin Roch, who had gone to see if the collector would give him a clearance or permission to sail out of the port of Boston with the tea. Roch came in and told the angry crowd that the collector refused to give the clearance. The people told him that he must get a pass from the governor. Then the meeting adjourned for the morning. At three o'clock in the afternoon a great throng of eager men again crowded the Old South Church and the streets outside to await for the return of Roch. It was an anxious moment. If the governor refuses to give the pass, 
Shall the revenue officer be allowed to seize the tea and land it tomorrow morning? Many anxious faces showed that men were asking themselves this momentous question, but while, in deep suspense, the meeting waited for Raj to come they discussed the situation, and suddenly John Rowe asked, who knows how tea will mingle with salt water, that once a whirlwind of applause swept through the assembly and the masses outside. A plan was soon formed, the afternoon light of the short winter day faded, and darkness deepened, the lights of candles sprang up here and there in the windows. It was past six o'clock when Benjamin Roch entered the church and, with pale face, said, The governor refuses to give a pass. An angry murmur arose, but the crowd soon became silent as Samuel Adams stood up. He said quietly, This meeting can do nothing more to save the country. These words were plainly a signal. In an instant a war hoop sounded outside, and forty or fifty Mohawks, or men dressed as Indians, who had been waiting dashed past the door and down Milk Street toward Griffin's Wharf, where the tea ships were lying at anchor. It was then bright moonlight, and everything could be plainly seen. Many men stood on shore and watched the Mohawks as they broke open 342 chests, and poured the tea into the harbor. There was no confusion. All was done in perfect order. But what a strange tea party it was. Certainly no other ever used so much tea or so much water. Soon waiting messengers were speeding to outlying towns with the news, and Paul Revere, booted and spurred, mounted a swift horse and carried the glorious message through the colonies as far as Philadelphia. Some results of the Boston Tea Party The Boston Tea Party was not a festivity which pleased the king. In fact, it made him very furious. He promptly decided to punish the rebellious colony. Parliament therefore passed the Boston Court Bill by which the port of Boston was to be closed to trade until the people paid for the tea, but this they had no mind to do. They stubbornly refused. Not Boston alone came under the displeasure of King George and Parliament. They put Massachusetts under military rule, with General Gage as governor, and sent more soldiers. The new governor gave orders that the colonial assembly should hold no more meetings. He said that the people should no longer make their own laws, nor levy their own taxes. This punishment was indeed severe, with no vessels allowed to enter or leave the harbor and trade entirely cut off. The people of Boston soon began to suffer, but the brave men and women would not give in. They said, we will not pay for the tea, nor will we tell the king we are sorry for what we have done. When the people of the other colonies heard of the suffering in Boston, they sent wheat, cows, sheep, fish, sugar, and other kinds of food to help out. The king thought that by punishing Boston he would frighten the other colonies, but he was mistaken, for they said, we will help the people of our sister colony, her cause is our cause, we must all pull together in our resistance to King George and the English Parliament, so his action really united the colonies, in order to work together to better advantage, the colonies agreed that each should send to a great meeting some of their strongest men to talk over their troubles and work out some plan of united action, this meeting, which was called the First Continental Congress, was held at Carpenter's Hall, Philadelphia 1774. Samuel Adams and his cousin, John Adams, were two of the four men that Massachusetts sent. They began their journey from Boston in a coach drawn by four horses, in front rode two white servants, well mounted and bearing arms, while behind were four black servants in livery, two on horseback and two as footmen. Such was the manner of colonial gentlemen. As they journeyed through the country the people honored them in many ways, 
from some of the larger towns officials and citizens rode out on horseback and in carriages to meet them and act as escort, and on reaching a town they were feasted at banquets and greeted by gleaming bonfires, the ringing of bells, and the firing of cannon. These celebrations showed honor not to the men alone but to the cause, the First Continental Congress, to which these messengers were traveling urged the people to stand together in resisting the attempt of King George and Parliament to force them to pay taxes which they had had no share in laying. They added, we had the right not only to tax ourselves, but also to govern ourselves. With all these movements Samuel Adams was in sympathy. He went even further, for at this time he was almost or quite alone in his desire for independence, and he has well been called the father of the revolution. Perhaps we think of him especially in connection with the Boston Tea Party but his influence for the good of his country lasted far beyond that time. Till the close of his life he was an earnest and sincere patriot. He died in 1803, at the age of 81 years. Not an orator like Patrick Henry, but a man of action like Washington. He had great power in dealing with men. Truly his life was one of great and heroic service to his country. Some things to think about one. In what respects were Samuel Adams and Patrick Henry unlike as boys? Two. Tell why Samuel Adams had great power over men. 3. What kind of man was George I.I.I.? Why did he so strongly desire that the colonists should be compelled to pay a tax to England? 4. What was the tax law of 1767? And why did the colonists object to paying the new taxes? 5. What led up to the Boston Tea Party? Imagine yourself one of the party, and tell what you did. 6. In what way did George I.I.I. and Parliament punish Boston for throwing the tea overboard? How did the colonies help the people of Boston at this time? 7. What was the first Continental Congress? And what did it do? 8. What do you admire in Samuel Adams? Chapter I.I.I. The war begins near Boston when Parliament passed the Boston Port Bill. The King believed that such severe punishment would not only put a stop to further rebellious acts, but would cause the colonists to feel sorry for what they had done and incline them once more to obey him. Imagine his surprise and indignation at what followed. As soon as General Gage ordered that the Massachusetts Assembly should hold no more meetings, the colonists made up their minds they would not be put down in this manner. They said, the king has broken up the assembly. Very well. We will form a new governing body and give it a new name. The Provincial Congress. And what do you suppose the chief business of this Congress was? To make ready for war, an army was called for, and provision made that a certain number of the men enlisted should be prepared to leave their homes at a minute's notice. These men were called, Minute Men, even while the Patriots, for so the rebellious subjects of King George called themselves, were making these preparations. General Gage, who was in command of the British troops in Boston, had received orders from England to seize as traitors Samuel Adams and John Hancock, who were the most active leaders. Of Samuel Adams you already know. John Hancock was president of the newly made Provincial Congress. General Gage knew that Adams and Hancock were staying for a while with a friend in Lexington. He had learned also through spies that Minutemen had collected some cannon and military stores in Concord, 20 miles from Boston, and only 8 miles beyond Lexington. The British general planned, therefore, to send a body of troops to arrest the two leaders at Lexington and then to push on and capture or destroy the stores at Concord. Although he acted with the greatest secrecy, he was unable to keep his plans from the watchful Minutemen. We shall see how one of these, Paul Revere, outwitted him. 
Perhaps you have read Longfellow's poem which tells the story of the famous midnight ride taken by this fearless young man. Paul Revere had taken an active part in the Boston Tea Party, and the following year, with about 30 other young patriots, he had formed a society to spy out the British plans. I fancy that the daring and courage called for in this business appealed to the high spirits and love of adventure of these young men, always on the watch. They were quick to notice any strange movement and report to such leaders as Samuel Adams, John Hancock, and Dr. Joseph Warren. On the evening of April 18, 1775, Paul Revere and his friends brought word to Dr. Warren that they believed General Gage was about to carry out his plan, already reported to the Patriots, of capturing Adams and Hancock, and of taking or destroying the military stores at Concord. Dr. Warren quickly decided that Paul Revere and William Dawes should go on horseback to Lexington and Concord and give the alarm. He sent them by different routes, hoping that one at least might escape the British patrols with whom Gage had carefully guarded all the roads leading from Boston. Soon Dawes was galloping across Boston Neck, and Paul Revere was getting ready for a long night ride. After arranging with a friend for a lantern signal to be hung in the belfry of the Old North Church to show by which route the British forces were advancing, one if by land and two if by sea, he stepped into a light skiff with two friends who rowed him from Boston across the Charles River to Charlestown. Upon reaching the other side of the river, he obtained a fleet horse and stood ready, bridle in hand, straining his eyes in the darkness to catch sight of the signal lights. The horse waits obedient to his master's touch and the master stands eagerly watching the spot where the signal is to appear. At eleven o'clock a light flashes forth. Exciting moment. Then another light. To it by sea. The British troops are crossing the Charles River to march through Cambridge. No time to lose. Springing into his saddle and spurring his horse. He speeds like the wind toward Lexington. Suddenly two British officers are about to capture him. He turns quickly and, dashing into a side path. With spurs and horse he is soon far from his pursuers. Then, in his swift flight along the road he pauses at every house to shout, Up and arm! Up and arm! The regulars are out! The regulars are out! Families are roused! Lights gleam from the windows! Doors open and close! Minutemen are mustering! When Lexington is reached, it is just midnight! Eight Minutemen are guarding the house where Adams and Hancock are sleeping! Make less noise! Don't disturb the people inside! They warn the lusty rider. Noise! cries Paul Revere. You'll have noise enough before long. The regulars are out. Soon William Dawes arrived and joined Revere, hastily refreshing themselves with a light meal. They rode off together toward Concord, in company with Samuel Prescott, a prominent son of liberty whose home was in that town. About halfway there, they were surprised by mounted British officers, who called, Halt! Prescott managed to escape by making his horse leap a stone wall, and rode in hot haste to Concord, which he reached in safety, but Paul Revere and William Dawes both fell into the hands of the British. The Battle of Lexington and Concord meantime, the British troops numbering 800 men, under Lieutenant Colonel Smith, were on their way to Lexington, but before they had gone far they were made aware, by the ringing of church bells, the firing of signal guns, the beating of drums and the gleaming of beacon fires from the surrounding hilltops, that their secret was out, and that the Minutemen knew what was going on. Surprised and disturbed by these signs that the colonists were on the alert, Colonel Smith sent Major Pitcairn ahead with a picked body of troops, in the hope that they might reach Lexington before the town could be completely aroused. He also sent back to Boston for more men, 
the British commander would have been still more disturbed if he had known all that was happening, for the alarm signals were calling to arms thousands of patriots ready to die for their rights. Hastily wakened from sleep, men snatched their old muskets from over the door, and bidding a hurried goodbye to a wife and children, started for the meeting places long before agreed upon. Just as the sun was rising, Major Pitcairn marched into Lexington, where he found forty or fifty Minutemen ready to dispute his advance. Disperse, ye rebels, disperse, he cried, riding up, but they did not disperse. Pitcairn ordered his men to fire and eighteen Minutemen fell to the ground. Before the arrival of Pitcairn the British officers who had captured Revere and Dawes returned with them to Lexington, where, commanding Revere to dismount, they let him go, running off at full speed to the house where Samuel Adams and John Hancock were staying. He told them what had happened, and then guided them across the fields to a place of safety, leaving the shocked and dazed villagers to collect their dead and wounded. Colonel Smith hastened to Concord, he arrived about seven in the morning, six hours after Dr. Prescott had given the alarm. There had been time to hide the military stores, so the British could not get at those, but they cut down the Liberty Pole, set fire to the courthouse, spiked a few cannon, and emptied some barrels of flour. About two hundred of them stood guard at the North Bridge, while a body of Minutemen gathered on a hill on the opposite side. When the Minutemen had increased to four hundred, they advanced to the bridge and brought on a fight which resulted in loss of life on both sides. Then, pushing on across the bridge, they forced the British to withdraw into the town. The affair had become more serious than the British had expected. Even in the town they could not rest, for an ever-increasing body of Minutemen kept swarming into Concord from every direction. By noon Colonel Smith could see that it would be unwise to delay the return to Boston. So, although his men had marched twenty miles, and had had little or no food for fourteen hours. He gave the order for the return march, but when they started back, the Minutemen kept after them and began a deadly attack. It was an unequal fight. The Minutemen, trained to a woodland warfare, slipped from tree to tree, shot down the worn and helpless British soldiers, and then retreated only to a return and repeat the harassing attack. The wooded country through which they were passing favored this kind of fighting but even in the open country every stone wall and hill, every house and barn seemed to the exhausted British troops to bristle with the guns of Minutemen. The retreating army dragged wearily forward, fighting as bravely as possible, but on the verge of confusion and panic, they reached Lexington Common at two o'clock. Quite overcome with fatigue, there they were met by 1,200 fresh troops, under Lord Percy, whose timely arrival saved the entire force from capture. Lord Percy's men formed a square for the protection of the retreating soldiers, and into it they staggered, falling upon the ground, with their tongues hanging out of their mouths like those of dogs after a chase. After resting for an hour, the British again took up their march to Boston. The Minutemen, increasing in numbers every moment, kept up the same kind of running attack that they had made between Concord and Lexington until, late in the day. The Redcoats came under the protection of the guns of the war vessels in Boston Harbor. The British had failed. There was no denying that. They had been driven back, almost in a panic, to Boston, with a loss of nearly 300 men. The Americans had not lost 100, but the king was not aroused to the situation. He had a vision of his superb regiments in their brilliant uniforms overriding all before them. And how did the provincials, as the British called the Americans, regard the situation? 
they saw clearly and without glamour the deadly nature of the struggle upon which they had entered and the strength of the opposing army against which they must measure their own strength. The people of Massachusetts for miles around Boston were now in a state of great excitement. Farmers, mechanics, men in all walks of life flocked to the army, and within a few days the Americans, 16,000 strong, were surrounding the British in Boston, while the people of Massachusetts were in the midst of these stirring scenes. An event of deep meaning to all the colonies was taking place in Philadelphia. Here the Continental Congress, coming together for the second time, was making plans for carrying on the war by voting money for war purposes and by making George Washington commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, of which the troops around Boston were the beginning. Thus did the colonies recognize that war had come and that they must stand together in the fight. Illustration, President Langdon, the president of Harvard College praying for the Banker Hill entrenching party on Cambridge Common just before their departure. Meantime more British troops, under the command of General Howe, arrived in Boston, making an army of 10,000 men, believing they could be forced to leave the town by cannon planted on Banker Hill. The Americans decided to occupy it, on the night of June 16th. Therefore, shortly before midnight, 1,200 Americans marched quietly from Cambridge and, advancing to Breeds Hill, which was nearer Boston than Banker Hill, began to throw up breastworks. They worked hard all night, and by early morning had made good headway. The British, on awaking, were greatly surprised to see what had been done. They turned the fire of their war vessels upon the Americans, who, however, kept right on with their work. General Howe, now in command of the British Army, thought it would be easy enough to drive off the rebels. So about three o'clock in the afternoon he made an assault upon their works. The British soldiers, burdened with heavy knapsacks, and suffering from the heat of a summer Sunday had to march through tall grass reaching above their knees and to climb many fences. Behind their breastworks the Americans watched the scarlet ranks coming nearer and nearer. Powder was low, and must not be wasted. Colonel William Prescott, who was in command, told his men not to fire too soon. Wait till you see the whites of their eyes, he said. Twice the British soldiers, in their scarlet uniforms, climb the slope of the hill and charge the breastworks. Twice the Americans drive them back, plowing great gaps in their ranks. A third time they advance, but now the Americans do not answer the charge. There is good reason the powder has given out. A great rush and the redcoats have climbed over, but it is no easy victory even now. And there is no lack of bravery on the part of the Americans. With clubbed muskets they meet the invaders. The British won the victory, but with great loss. Many such, said one critic, would have cost them their army. On the other hand, the Americans had fought like heroes, and news of the battle brought joy to every loyal heart. Washington heard of it when on his way to take command of the army. Did the Americans stand fire? Was his first question. Yes, was the answer. Then, said he, the liberties of the country are safe. Some things to think about one, impersonating Paul Revere. Tell the story of his famous ride. What do you think of him? 2. Why did the British troops march out to Lexington and Concord? 3. Imagine yourself at Concord on the morning of the battle, and tell what happened. 4. Why did the Americans fortify Breed's Hill? What were the results of the Battle of Bunker Hill? 5. What did Washington say when he heard that the Americans had stood their ground in face of the British assault? Chapter I.D. George Washington in the Revolution in electing George Washington Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army. The Continental Congress probably made the very wisest choice possible, of course, 
This was not so clear then. For even leaders like Samuel Adams and John Adams and Patrick Henry did not know Washington's ability as we have come to know it now. But they had learned enough about his wonderful power over men and his great skill as a leader in time of war to believe that he was the man to whom they might trust the great work of directing the army in this momentous crisis. We have already learned, in a previous book, something of Washington's boyhood, so simple and free and full of activity. We recall him, as he grew up, first as a youthful surveyor, then as the trusted messenger of his colony, Virginia, to the commander of the French forts west of the Alleghenies and afterward as an aide of General Braddock when the war with the French broke out. In the discharge of all these duties and in all his relations with men, whether above him in office or under his command, he had shown himself trustworthy and efficient, a man of clear mind and decisive action one who commanded men's respect, obedience, and even love. After the last battle of the last French war Washington had returned to his home at Mount Vernon, on the banks of the Potomac and very soon 1759 married Mrs. Martha Custis, a young widow whom he had met at a friend's house while he was on the way to Williamsburg the year before. With the addition of his wife's property to his own, he became a man of much wealth and at one time was one of the largest landholders in America. But with all his wealth and experience Washington had the modesty which always goes with true greatness. In the Virginia House of Burgesses, to which he was elected after the last French war, he was given a vote of thanks for his brave services in that war. Rising to a reply, Washington, still a young man, stood blushing and stammering, unable to say a word. The speaker, liking him nonetheless for this embarrassment, said, with much grace, sit down, Mr. Washington, your modesty equals your valor, and that surpasses the power of any language I possess. Some years rolled by and the home-loving young planter lived the busy but quiet life of a high-bred Virginia gentleman. Meanwhile the exciting events of which we have been speaking were crowding upon one another and leading up to the revolution, and in this interval of quiet country life Washington was unconsciously preparing for the greater task for which he was soon to be chosen. In the events of these days Washington took his own part. He was one of the representatives of Virginia at the first meeting of the Continental Congress, in 1774 going to Philadelphia in company with Patrick Henry and others. He was also a delegate to the second meeting of the Continental Congress, in May, 1775. He filled well each place of trust, and what more natural than that the Congress should choose as commander-in-chief of the American army this gentleman, young, able, and already tried and proven, he was chosen unanimously. On being elected, Washington rose and thanked Congress for the honor, adding modestly, I do not think myself equal to the command I am honored with. No doubt in the dark days of war to follow he often felt in this way. But as the task had fallen to him, he determined to do his best and trust in a higher power for the outcome. He refused to accept any salary for his services, but said he would keep an account of his expenses. The idea of gain for himself in the time of his country's need was far removed from this great man's heart. On the 21st of June. Washington set out on horseback from Philadelphia, in company with a small body of horsemen, to take command of the American army around Boston. This journey, which can now be made by train in a few hours, took several days. Soon after starting, Washington was much encouraged, as we have seen in a preceding chapter, by the news of the brave stand the provincials had made at the Battle of Bunker Hill. After three days, he reached New York, about four o'clock on Sunday afternoon and was given a royal welcome, 
Nine companies of soldiers on foot escorted him as he passed through the streets in an open carriage drawn by two white horses. All along the route the streets were lined with people who greeted him with cheers. Continuing his journey, on July 2nd he reached the camp in Cambridge, and their officers and soldiers received him with enthusiasm. Washington in command of the army next day under the famous elm still standing near Harvard University. Washington drew his sword and took command of the American army. He was then 43 years old, tall and manly in form, noble and dignified in bearing. His soldiers looked upon him with pride as he sat upon his horse, a superb picture of strength and dignity. He wore a three-cornered hat with the cockade of liberty upon it, and across his breast a broad band of blue silk. The impression he made was most pleasing, his courteous and kindly manner winning friends immediately. Washington at once began the labor of getting his troops ready to fight, as his army was one only in name, for although the men were brave and willing, they had never been trained for war, and were not even supplied with muskets or powder. Fortunately, the British did not know how badly off the American army was, and were taking their ease inside their own defenses. The autumn and the winter slipped by before Washington could make the attempt to drive the British out of Boston. At last, by the 1st of March, some cannon and other supplies arrived in camp. Many of them had been dragged over the snow from Ticonderoga on sledges drawn by oxen. This gave Washington his opportunity to strike. One night, while the cannon of the American army, which was just outside of Boston, were firing upon the British for the purpose of concealing Washington's plan. He sent troops to seize and fortify Dorchester Heights, overlooking Boston on the south. Next morning when the astonished British commander, Howe, realized what the Americans had done, he saw clearly that he must drive them from the heights or else leave Boston himself. But before he could send a force across the bay, a violent storm came up and delayed the attack. In the meantime the Americans had made their earthworks so strong that Howe decided not to molest them. He remembered too well the Banker Hill affair, so with all his army he sailed away to Halifax, leaving behind much powder and many cannon, which you may be sure the Americans lost no time in seizing. Washington believed that after leaving Boston the British would try to take New York in order to get control of the Hudson River and the Middle Colonies. To outwit them his men must get to New York first. This they did. He had not gone far in putting up defenses there when an 